You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Just an honest, transparent moment. You ever just stand in worship and you just can't sing? Not because you're overwhelmed. I mean, yeah, there are times you can't sing because you are overwhelmed with the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, but we just sang Good, Good Father. That's the easy part. God, you are good, and I just love being in your presence. But then we're asking him to take us deeper. That's not just a song, people, that's a prayer. We just sang, you know, in my life, be glorified, be magnified. On the altar of my life, God, be magnified. That's not a song, that's a prayer. We're praying to the Father. We're asking Him to do something in us, to do something with us. Uh, This week, I I was thinking of a couple other songs. We have sung a lot through church life and church tradition. Uh, Wherever He leads, I'll go. Anybody remember that one? Wherever He leads, I'll go. Sing it with me. You remember it? Wherever He leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. And then I look at myself and I go, Dave, you're a liar. I mean, honest moment, right? If I'm going to ask him, if I'm going to pray and I'm going to surrender my life to him, I have to be willing to do what I say. Oceans, remember that one? It's a great song. Until we get to that place, it says, take me deeper where I'm in over my head. Take me deeper where my trust is without borders. God, put me at the end of myself so that I can bring honor and glory to you. Folks, that's uncomfortable stuff. And yet sometimes we have to realize that's exactly where God wants us as we walk in fellowship and relationship with Him. In this series in Daniel, we now come to chapter 4. And that's exactly what's happening to a guy. And it's a perfect picture of what happens in our life as God redeems and restores and draws us to himself. Daniel chapter 4, go ahead and turn there. We're going to jump in pretty fast this morning. Uh, But just a quick setup, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of this great statue. And so chapter 3 tells us he took that dream 20 years later, 20 years to build this 90-foot tall by nine foot wide statue that he was then commanding all tongues, all people, all nations to bow and to worship. Chapter three was all about worship and worship of Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter four shifts that worship from Nebuchadnezzar to God because the words in in chapter three, we saw probably 11 times the word worship used really about Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter four, we start seeing words about earth at least 10 times, and heaven at least 16 times, because Nebuchadnezzar's focus begins to shift. God does something in his life that breaks him, humiliates him, breaks some of his pride, and turns his attention from himself to the the God of heaven. That's where we are. So, it's been approximately another 20 years from chapter 3 to chapter 4. And when you read chapter 4, what you see in chapter 4 is eight years is actually explained. Eight of the 20 is explained in Nebuchadnezzar's dream because chapter 4 is another dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. So let's just jump right in. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, 
Beginning in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, all nations, all languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Now, really quick, let me help you understand. Nebuchadnezzar starts at the end of his story, okay? He, he starts at the end of his story. This is eight years after Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is what he says. Then we're going to jump to the dream. But he begins with this, all peoples, nations, languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Verse 2, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar has had some incredible encounters with God. Chapter 2, the telling and interpretation of the dream. God was giving him a shake-me-to-wake-me moment. Chapter 3, as, as he's trying to get everyone to bow down, and Rakshak and Benny say, no, we're not going to bow down, and he throws them in the fiery furnace, and he has this encounter, and he sees the glory and the splendor of Almighty God. And yet, to no avail, because he's not surrendered his life. And so, what happened? What, what happened here? Why is he now beginning at the end of his story giving this praise to God? How did God humble him? How did God break him of his pride? What happened to him? Well, in Nebuchadnezzar's public testimony, which I, I find this absolutely fascinating, that there's this chapter in the Holy Word of God written by a guy that we know as a pagan king. <laughs> that seems fascinating to me. And what it tells me is that you are never out of God's reach. God will do everything to chase you down and pursue you and redeem you because he loves you and he cares for you. And if it means that he brings you to a broken point, that's exactly what he wants to do. He will bring you to that place. That's exactly what happens here with Nebuchadnezzar. And so in Nebuchadnezzar's public testimony, he begins to tell us the things that God did to him and the things that God did for him to bring him full circle. From worship of himself to an understanding and worship of the one true God. Now, understand this. He knew about God. He's known about God, but he hasn't come to know him. And so, I think in this chapter, there's lots of things. I'm going to give you three pictures that I see in, in chapter 4. The first picture is the picture of God's sovereignty. As Nebuchadnezzar unpacks his story, as he unpacks his testimony, he gives us a picture, and really all of Daniel creates this picture of the sovereignty of God. What we've seen so far is that God uses faithful people in, in crazy ways. Things are going to happen in your life as a follower of Jesus that make no sense. Because many of us buy into this idea that, hey, once I come to know Jesus, life is awesome. Life is awesome. No more problems, right? And it, no problems. I'm a Christian now. God loves me. He cares for me. He's going to protect me from anything and everything. Wrong. That's nowhere in Scripture. There's no promise of that. Matter of fact, it's interesting when you look back on church history, the church has always thrived in persecution. The church is thriving around the world in places where Christians are being persecuted for their faith. How many of us say, God, I want such a work of God here in America that I'm willing to experience persecution for the cause of Christ? Because that is when your church flourishes. 
We don't pray that. Yet we're going to see we come to a place much like Nebuchadnezzar. Folks, listen. We're living in a Babylon. I don't know if you realize that or not. We live in a broken, stupid, messed up culture that is anti-Christian. And we need to learn to stand up and understand that God is sovereign and He is in control. Look what He, look what he says here uh, at the very beginning of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, see it on the screen. Daniel 1, Daniel uh, says God delivers Israel over to Nebuchadnezzar. He's saying, look guys, bad things are going to happen even to Christians. Daniel 1, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of, king of Judah, easy for me to say, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. Verse 2, and the Lord, what did he say? Gave, say gave. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. You'll be introduced to those vessels next, next week in chapter 5. It says that Nebuchadnezzar came and he besieged the land and God gave them over. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the stuff that we just sang about becomes a reality. God, my life is on the altar. Use me as you see fit. That may be taking you to a bad place. When you and I get really serious about our relationship with God, He may take us to a place that's really uncomfortable. Well, we understand that He is sovereign in all things, and He will use that for His glory and His honor. Because we die to ourselves. Following Jesus is dying to ourselves and following Jesus. So when we talk about sovereignty, what is the sovereignty of God? Let me just read a, a definition. Uh, if you pick up a Bible dictionary or commentaries, I mean, there's pages and pages and pages because you begin to break out the doctrine uh, of the sovereignty of God, and it affects all sorts of things. There'll be a, a whole doctrine on just the, the creation and, and God's creation and sovereignty and, and the general revelation of God and, and the providence of God. But, but in a nutshell, from the Gospel Coalition, this is a very simple definition. It simply defined the sovereignty of God is the same as the Lordship of God, for God is the sovereign over all creation. The major components of God's Lordship are His control, authority, and covenantal presence. They go on with just a little description summary with this. It says, the sovereignty of God is the fact that He is Lord over creation. As sovereign, He exercises His rule this rule is exercised through God's authority as king, his control over all things, and his presence with his covenantal people and throughout his creation. The divine name, Yahweh, expresses this sovereign rule over against the claims of human kings, such as Pharaoh, or we would say Nebuchadnezzar. Because God is tripersonal, however, his sovereign control is not impersonal or mechanical but is the loving and gracious oversight of the king of creation and the king of redemption. See, the name Yahweh, Jehovah God, literally carries with it the idea that, that God is set apart from his creation. His creation is here, but he stands apart from his creation, yet he's personally involved in his creation. A lot of people believe in, in God, the big man upstairs, Right? Oh, yeah, I believe in God, but he's distant and impersonal, and you cannot know him. 
The God of the Bible, the God of, that we worship is sovereign over all things. He's involved in every aspect of your life and my life. He's involved in every aspect of his creation. He's also personal and intimate so that he invites us into relationship with him and wants to walk through his sovereign creation with us through the good times, through the bad times. That's the sovereignty of God. That he knows all things. He's involved in all things. And so, even as we saw in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego end up in the fiery furnace. Why? Because they were disobedient to God? No. They were faithful and obedient to God, and that's what took them to the fiery furnace. You think God was surprised by that? No. No, no surprise at all. He is sovereign, and he's using that scenario as a, as a mechanism, as a tool, as a guide, as a salt and light that we learn about in Matthew. He's planting them to be salt and light to this king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's declaring his glory through them and their obedience. Last week, chapter 3, we discovered that the object of your faith determines your outlook. And chapter 3 was all about worship, right? And, and, and it was worship. Now, now we begin to see here the, the, uh, when the result of that improper outlook in Nebuchadnezzar's heart and life was pride. And pride is literally at the root of all sin. All sin goes back to pride. And so we find Nebuchadnezzar now in this very proud, very boastful, very arrogant moment where he has he is set himself up as the God of Babylon. And God's now going to bring him down. He's going to humble him just as he will humble us in our pride and in our sin and our rejection of God's love. He will humble us and bring us to a point of allowing us to come to know him. But he still leaves us with that choice. That choice is still yours. And so what we discover here is in this testimonial chapter, now he begins to look, instead of looking down with pride against people, we see him look upward. We begin to see him acknowledge God. And so we move from God's sovereignty because there's this picture of God's sovereignty in all of this, and we move now to God's grace and mercy. There's an incredible picture of God's grace and mercy here. Uh, look with me at verse 4. Uh, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Uh, what, what he's literally saying here right now is that I have no conflict. The, there's no enemies at my border is literally what he's saying. I am at ease in my house. I am comfortable. I am prosperous. Uh, when you understand the Babylonian Empire at this point was probably at its height, probably at its zenith, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is, is ruling over all of the Babylonian Empire, which is massive at this point. If you just think geographically for a moment of, of, of the Middle East area, he had just moved uh, from, from, the, from the east over to the west and, and besieged Jerusalem. So from where he was around center of Iraq, all through Iran, all the way to the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea, moving northward up toward Georgia, um, the Caspian Sea, over into Turkey, south down into Egypt, down into Saudi Arabia, the Saudi desert. It's this massive chunk of land where he is ruling. 
And all these people, he, he's inviting to worship him and commanding to worship him. So he, he's at the height of, of his command and his rule. And so he sits there and he says, man, I, I am at ease in my house. There's no conflict. I have no enemies at my border. And I'm prospering in my palace. Uh, to put it in modern day terms, he's fat and sassy. Okay? He's fat and sassy. He's comfortable. He's prosperous. He's complacent. He, he's at that point of going, now what can I do, right? I, I have all this stuff. I, I need more. What, what can I pursue? What can I do? And, and he's proud. He's boastful. He's at the place that many of us arrive as followers of Jesus. Listen really careful. If I have no need, I have no need for God. That is a comfortable American position right now. If, if I have no need, I have no need for God. And God says, no, 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 Dave, you died to yourself. There's that old hymn, remember? I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. We live in absolute, complete dependence and surrender on God. Most of us want to live like Nebuchadnezzar. I have no enemies at my gate. I'm at ease. I'm prosperous. I'm fat, sassy, prosperous, comfortable. Now I'm complacent. What I want from God are the things that I want, not the things that he wants. What I want from my church are the things that I want, not the things that God wants for us. God, how can you make me more comfortable? God, how can you make me more prosperous? That's a bad place to be, people. And we see it right here. And I think one, one important thing that, that we need to understand in this moment, Nebuchadnezzar believed in Daniel's God. You hear me? He believed in Daniel's God. But intellectual belief is not the same as biblical faith. And some of you may be sitting here this morning, you may be watching with us online, and you have an intellectual belief that is not the same as a biblical faith and surrender in Jesus. I want you to know that God loves you, and you're going to see in here, He's extending grace and mercy to come to know Him and trust Him. And He wants to do that before you come to a broken place. But He will take you to that place and allow that place if it brings you to Him. We'll see that caution with Nebuchadnezzar, and it's a caution for us as well. Verses 5 through 9, basically now he, he's had this dream. And verses 5 through 9 say he begins to call in all of his astrologers and all of his mystics and all these guys, and no one can interpret the dream. And so we pick it up in verse 9 where he calls in Daniel. And Daniel, or also known here as Belteshazzar, chief of the musicians because, did I say musicians? Um, magicians, uh, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. 
So from verses 10 down through 17, let's just begin to read. I'm not going to take time to read all of that, but let's just uh, pick it up in verse 10 for a moment. And I want you to see as he's telling Daniel, this is the dream that I had. It scared me. It shook me. It, it, I was in fear. And he begins in verse 10, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and it became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. This, this was Babylon as he knew it. I mean, it, it was like it was reaching, his empire was reaching to, to everyone. Verse 12, its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. From there, he basically says where the dream went is that I saw this, this heavenly host. I, I saw this angelic being who, who came and said, cut down the tree. Cut, cut down the tree, lop off all of its branches. Destroy it, but leave the stump. That's what he tells us in verse 15 as he's unpacking the dream. Leave the stump. This is the dream. And, and so as he invites Daniel to, to come and interpret this dream, Daniel uh, knowingly is very hesitant because he knows what this dream represents, and, and he's somewhat fearful. The text actually tells us that he was somewhat hesitant. Uh, your, your translation may say dismayed or alarmed, to which King Nebuchadnezzar says, don't be alarmed about the dream or the interpretation. Just give it to me straight. <laughs> so Daniel does, and look, look what he says in verse 22. It is you. It is you, O king. The tree is you. You, you who have grown and become strong, your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Daniel just shoots straight with him. He said, King, I get it, man. I understand the dream. And the interpretation is this. You're that tree. And God's about to cut you down. He's going to lop off your limbs. He's going to disperse your fruit. And for seven Years, when you read the passage, it says seven seasons of time or seven seasons, seven years. You, O oh great and prideful, mighty king, are going to live like an ox. You're going to live like the beasts of the fields. You're going to eat the grass of the ground. You're going to be removed from your kingdom. That's crazy news, isn't it? How'd you like to be the bearer of that bad news? It's one thing to tell him the dream you had that was this beautiful gold statue, and you're the head. That was chapter two. It's another thing to come and say that tree is you, and you're about to be chopped down. I don't know about you guys. We all need a Daniel, don't we? We all need a Daniel in our life that speaks to us and goes, Dave, that's you. God has a better plan and a better purpose for you than that. That's where personal discipleship comes in, where we have people that are challenging us, growing us, encouraging us to walk with Jesus. Why? Because in my flesh, we don't naturally drift toward intimacy and, and obedience with Jesus, do we? 
Is there anybody here just naturally, man, your life, you just wake up and every day you are drifting closer and closer and more intimate with Jesus and his mission? Matter of fact, last year uh, in our Hebrews series, Pastor Scott over and over and over reminded us, don't drift. Don't drift. See, when we come to know Christ, we still have this flesh, this old nature, and, and the tendency for every one of us, no matter how much praise we give to Him, no matter how much time I spend in His Word, my flesh is always causing me to drift from Him. And I need a Daniel in my life to step back in and go, Dave, don't drift. Don't drift. Let me take you back to the Word of God. Let's press in. Because you don't want God to humble you and break you only to bring you back. But that's what He's telling him. Verse 15, verse 23, verse 26, all use this phrase. Let's just look at verse 24 for a moment. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time, that's seven seasons, seven years shall pass over you till you know the Most High God. For seven years, God's going to break you and humiliate you. Why? So that you will come to know the one true God. Verse 26, and it was commanded, it was commanded, it was part of the dream, it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know the heaven rules. Daniel is saying, it's you. But you also see God's grace right here. Verse 26, from the time that you know that heaven rules. He's using language to say, Nebuchadnezzar, God is going to lead you back. And, and you will come out of that insanity. You will be broken of your pride. You will be humbled. And there will be a point at which you come back. Exactly what he says in verse 26, that you know that heaven rules. The God of heaven, my God rules. He is God, you are not. And Nebuchadnezzar, it's going to take you seven years to understand that. That's what he's telling him. God has given him grace. He's extending mercy in this moment. And what's amazing to me is that, number one, it happens exactly like he said, but it takes Nebuchadnezzar 12 months, one year to get there. What he's telling us is this. He says, look, there's always a way back. God's going to break you of your pride. He's going to humiliate you. You're going to lose your kingdom, but God's always going to give you a way back. There's always a way back. There's always a path to redemption. There's always a path to renewal. Leave the stump. What did the stump represent? The stump represented the life of the tree. The roots, the, 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 the vegetation, the flourishing comes from the roots. Anybody ever try to remove a stump? Any manly men in the room lose a bumper trying to yank out a stump? Those are hard. I, I seriously almost lost a bumper one time on what I thought was really pretty simple. I'm like, this is a piece of cake. And I'm like, 
It wasn't going to happen. A few years ago, uh, Leslie, who's so much more intelligent than I am in so many ways, had this idea of, of this area on the side of our house that doesn't grow anything but weeds, and, and there was a little raised herb garden bed, and she said, why don't we just get rid of all of that, make a nice little garden kind of sitting area, and we'll just get rid of all that stuff and just put pea gravel right there. And, and I said, that's great. So she ordered the pea gravel. It's all ready to go. We're clearing all this stuff out. We rip out the raised herb bed to find what? What's in there? A stump. I'm like, really? See, they didn't want to take the stump out, so they just built a raised herb bed around it. So now it's the weekend. Pea gravel's being delivered on Monday. I got a task to accomplish. I spent three days with the sweat of my brow, working like a rented mule, trying to remove that stump. And all I had to do was get it level. I didn't have to take it out. I just had to get it down to ground level, but it's been packed in dirt for I don't know how long, but years. And I think I destroyed some axes and chainsaws and all kinds of stuff. And I'm whacking at this thing with everything that I had in me only to get it down level. You ever had a tree removed? You ever called a tree removal? Phone's for you, by the way. You ever have a tree removed? You ever call a tree removal company? Anybody? Let me see a hand. You get two bids when you have a tree removed. One, to down the tree. The second is to remove the stump. Removing the stump is more expensive than downing the tree. I mean, this is, this is work. It's costly. It's price. It's very pricey. So what people have done is, is over the years, and you see it all the time, you drive around town and a tree is gone, but there's a stump sitting there. And so we've made them decorative and we do things like this. We put a little pot on it and uh, we go, hey, I used to have a tree there, but now I have a stump and I'm going to make it really decorative. And we go, wow, oh, sweetheart, that looks awesome. Um, there's actually YouTube videos. You can go out there and you can find out how to hollow out a stump and actually make it a planter and plant things in there and make it pretty. Some of you are nodding your heads. I think you've done some of that. Um, I'd love to come see your stump work. Um, others, and the first time I saw this, we were living in, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and, and I was driving through a neighborhood and I saw this tree it was carved like an owl in these people's front yard. And I thought, that's really fascinating. Instead of like taking the stump out, they left the tree and they had it carved and there was an owl. And I thought, that's really cool. Well, this is a thing. There's like artists that you can hire. And I guess apparently it's still cheaper than removing the stump to have this guy come and carve raccoons and squirrels. One were just really cute. It's a stump and they just carved a squirrel on top, sitting on the stump. I thought, well, that's creative. But some of them have really gone to great lengths. There was one guy, he had this stump uh, in his front yard, and he thought, okay, that's like, you know, a million dollars probably to remove this. So he said, you know what would be cool? I'm going to turn it into a playhouse for my kids. And so you can see his YouTube video. He went on and he created this playhouse for his children. Um, incredible stuff. I mean, there's incredible works of art out there. Uh, one guy, to great extent, had this castle carved in a, in a, I mean, it's like these are pieces of art which are apparently still cheaper than having the stump removed, right? I mean, it's like, this is incredible that it's like, wow, is that really cheaper than having the thing removed? Um, but God said, leave the stump. Because in that stump is still the life of that tree, and, and there's always a path to renewal. There's always a way back. God always wants to bring us back. 
Now, on a complete side note for all, all my locals, uh, if, if you like to hike and you want to hike a couple miles, there's a downed tree in Umstead Park. You, anybody seen this? There's this downed tree. Um, I was talking to Pastor Danny about this one time, and he goes, oh, yeah, it's like three miles or something. He goes, but I know a shortcut. So if you want to go, but you don't want to hike three, four miles to get there, um, there's a close-up view of some of the intricacies of that downed tree. You can go hike Umstead, and Pastor Danny, if you catch him after the service, uh, after our prayer time, he will give you a shortcut to go see this downed tree. Um, but I think it's just fascinating. But in God's grace and mercy, what is he doing? He's saying, leave the stump. Matter of fact, in the dream and in the interpretation and in Daniel's wording, it says, leave the stump and around the stump will be an, an iron ring and a brass ring to protect it. Listen, God, even in my discipline, even in, in drawing us to himself, even though he lops it all off, he still creates around us a hedge of protection. He says, I'm going to care for you. I'm going to protect you. There's going to be this ring around you of my protection that, that can only go so far because I love you and my heart is to restore you and to use you for my honor and glory. So uh, uh, you're only going to go so far, but leave the stump. It's really an incredible picture. And so in verse 27, Daniel says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sin. Break off your sin. Daniel is giving him this warning. Break off your sin. Here's the interpretation of the dream. You're about to be cut off. You're about to be removed from, from your empire. You're about to live in the field like an ox and eat the grass like an ox. Your hair's going to grow long. Your, your fingernails are going to be like that of, a, of, a, of claws because you're going to be a beast of the field. You're going to be away from your senses for seven years until you come back to your senses. And so Daniel's given him this warning. This is God's grace and mercy right here. You can avoid seven years if you simply repent right now. Break off your sin and repent. Folks, listen to me. God constantly gives us warnings over and over and over and over. And we can hear them and we can reject them. Or we can hear them and we can respond to God's love and grace. But even in his grace and mercy with an extended period of time, he extends that love to us, that care, that protection. So one year later, here's the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar says one year later, look at verse 28. One year later, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, one year after Daniel saying, it's you, break off your sin. It's you, break off your sin. Arrogance, pride, one year, 12 months later. He says, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He didn't heed the warning. He didn't respond. So 12 months later, and I love this because it says, verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, 
While the words were still in the king's mouth, 12 months later, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time, seven seasons of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's God's sovereignty. That is his sovereignty at work. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. You can heed the warning of God in the moment, but God's going to fulfill his promise. And he will do whatever's necessary to humble us and turn our attention to him. See, what's awesome is in that process of God saying, look, I'm going to create a hedge of protection. I'm going to, I'm going to guard you. I'm going to protect that stump because in my grace and mercy, I'm going to give you a way to be restored. And so we see it. The third picture that we see in here is, is God's glory revealed. God's glory is ultimately revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, and we pick it up in verse 34. At the end of the days, that's literally after these seven series or seven seasons of time, after these seven years, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is his story. He started with the end. He gave us, he filled in the details. Now he's coming to the close. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. The words that he uses here to, to bless is, is to kneel. He, he was blessing him. He was kneeling. There was a sense of humility. God took him from his pride to humility. You'll see this in chapter 5 where, where Daniel is, is saying, look, God will humble people. He will humble those that, want to, that don't want to be humbled. God will humble you. And that's what he's saying. And, and he says that to praise him is to laud or to highly praise him, uh, to be honored, literally to be glorified in prayer and in praise. And he says, why? Because his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. This is his sovereignty and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done for me? Nebuchadnezzar got a glimpse of the glory and sovereignty of God. It was eight years since the dream, eight years since the interpretation, 12 months he, he rejected and rejected and rejected and finally God took him out and he gave him the seven years of humility that God promised him. That was the interpretation of the dream. Daniel didn't want to give it. And he said, you are the tree. It's you. Break off your sin. If not, God's judgment is coming. Now, the cool thing about Daniel is this. It creates a picture for us as we live personally in, in relationship with Christ. It's also this prophetic for, word for what is to come. And we'll press into that as we move through the book. But this is a beautiful picture of what God will do with people. He's given them opportunities to, to be restored, to come to know Him. Look how He closes. God's glory revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise 
and extol. Your translation may say exalt or lift on high. I praise, I lift on high, I exalt, and I honor the King of heaven. I love this. For all his works are right. He's saying he's sovereign. All of his works are right. His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar came to this realization, there is a God and I am not him. You and I need to come to that place every day, every moment. There is a God and I am not him. And yet in his sovereignty, as he rules over all of creation, he is intimately involved and desires intimate personal relationship with me and with you. And he will warn and he will humble and he will break, but the stump will remain because there's always a path to renewal. So church, don't drift. Press into the Lord. Grow. Embrace his mission for you. Embrace that relationship that he desires with you. Father, in this place, we invite you to do your work in us as only you can do. God, we love you and we praise you. With our heads bowed, in just a moment, the team's going to lead us. You will make a choice in that moment to praise, to honor, to exalt, to lift up, or not. And I invite you very honestly in this moment with the Lord. If he invites you to worship, worship. Listen to what you say. It's a prayer to the Lord. In humility, you may need to just remain seated. I invite you to do that. Uh, you may want to kneel right where you are. You may want to come to the altar and kneel and say, God, I don't want to play games with you. I want to humble myself. You will humble me if I don't humble myself. You will break me of my pride. You will break me of my arrogance. You will show me where I lie to you, even in worship. God, I want to be honest with you in this moment. Maybe some of you need to come to know the Lord this morning. I invite you to do that. Don't play games with Jesus. He invites you to know him and to know his grace. Maybe there's something you need to surrender to him this morning. And he's been speaking to your heart of pride, of arrogance. You've been running from him. And he's saying, I just want you to turn and be restored. Don't drift. Maybe you need to grow and press in. Don't drift. However, God is speaking to your heart this morning, in this moment, as we worship together, be honest with the Lord. Be honest with him. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.